First off, I want to thank all of you for being here. Great to see all of you here. If you are in one of my classes that you're here for, uh, then make sure, and Patrick Cayley back there, he's, uh, he's waving right there. Make sure and check in with him uh, if you're in one of the classes. So make sure and check in with him while you are here. Uh, we have with us uh, just a, it's going to be a delightful time, conversation with uh, Dr. Moeller and Dr. Chatro and uh, Dr. Burns together with us, uh, talking about uh, Augustine and apologetics and a lot of the other things we love to talk about. And what I want to do first is just lead us in prayer, and then I'm going to turn this over to Dr. Moeller uh, to facilitate this discussion. God, we thank you for the time that you grant to us. We thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together simply to think about your church and the heritage of the church that you have preserved for your glory. We thank you for that. Uh, let us never take that lightly. Let us always see that as a privilege to be able to engage in these, uh, these conversations that many Christians around the world uh, would love to hear. But uh, we can do this freely and with joy, and uh, we thank you for that. And I ask that you would bless this time tonight throughout the evening and tomorrow, uh, that you would be honored and glorified as we consider how your truth has been defended through the ages. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, the professors, welcome. I very much appreciate you being here, and the students and others, welcome. You know, if I could go back uh, to 1859, and uh, I could face the four founding faculty of this institution, there are a lot of things I could explain. Thankfully, most things. There's some things I'm not sure I could explain. And uh, one of them would be a conference on Augustine um, in 2023. And the interest of those of you who are here present and many others who will be at the conference and still others who will uh, watch the videos later. Uh, I think that's something unexpected. It would be difficult to explain uh, to uh, Princeton-trained uh, Protestants uh, of uh, 1859. But here we are. So, uh, first of all, the most important question, how, Professor Burns, do you pronounce the name of the Bishop of Hippo? I first studied him at Oxford where they say Augustine, but they're also not Americans, so I don't know where to come down on that. Well, I had a very similar experience. My introduction to Augustine in the scholarly world came from people um, who uniformly pronounced it Augustine. Professor Chateau, what here, set us straight. Well, I, f I first read Augustine in Greg Wills' uh, class my first semester at Southern Seminary, and I'm pretty sure he said Augustine, and then it stuck with me, so I'm going to go with Greg. <laughs> yes. And Bob Dylan says St. Augustine, so that's probably a reason to say Augustine also. Right. Well, I grew, up in, <laughs> I, I grew up in Florida, so I, um, yeah, I, I'm sticking with Augustine, and if he is angry about it in glory, I will, I will reform. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, uh, there's so many questions I want to ask the two of you. Uh, Professor Chateau, you, you and uh, an associate have just written a book on the Augustan way. So th that's not a small thing to produce a book of that magnitude. So why? Well, I need to back up and say how I got into Augustine, which isn't, uh, I'm not a patristic scholar. Uh, I'm an apologist. I'm an evangelist. And in 2015, I was working on a book with my good friend, Mark Allen. Uh, and, and what we were seeing was the way apologetics was being taught. Um, 
although there was many good things we saw from the discipline, there was a disconnect between pastors in this one ministry and what was going on in the classroom and in the textbooks. So we wrote a we wrote a book and spent several years on this. And while we were writing the book, we 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 came to Augustine and said, "Oh, because we had two chapters on the great tradition, and we said, oh, there's more. There's more here. We don't have time to pursue it at the moment." <laughs> so we put pause on that. And after we finished that book, we came back to it and spent several years going back and reading Augustine, and realizing that uh, Augustine as uh, not not simply a philosopher, although that's or a theologian, but as a pastor, gave us certain resources as he's ministering at really a time of tectonic change in his in his culture. So he's at the beginning, right before Christendom, and here we're at the well, the twilight, or maybe even in a post-Christian age. So we saw certain pal- parallels, not only between Augustine as as a pastor apologist and what we were trying to do, but also bringing some resources. Uh, to bear in our own in our own ministries as we tried to teach people how to do this. So it was really a retrieval of Augustine, recognizing, of course, entering any pre-modern uh, figure, there's going to be some things that are really weird and strange and different, but also seeing there's really resources in the Christian tradition to help us. Yeah, I would say among Protestants, the retrieval of Augustine is uh, is a lot older than that. Uh, Augustine was uh, the focus of the very first PhD seminar I took, uh, which is uh, 40 years ago. Um, I think already then, the sense of vast civilizational change, representing unavoidable questions to the Christian church, had presented themselves such that all of a sudden, Augustine looms large as one of the very few individuals to have dealt so comprehensively with those questions. And I, I don't want to give away my address. I don't want to, I don't want to deliver it early here tonight. But, um, you know, the, the, the two cities, for example, was hardly coined by Augustine. He just addressed it far more comprehensively than anyone had before. And so if you ask me my theological identity, Christian, evangelical, decidedly Protestant, but the next word I think would be Augustinian, even before Reformed, uh, because I think it's a larger, more comprehensive category, and we're we're speaking of a larger tradition. Uh, Professor Burns, let me ask you, in contemporary Catholicism, uh, you can answer that any way you want, but in contemporary Catholicism, is there a similar interest in Augustine, uh, say, among students and Academics, for sure. I should first of all say I, I am a Roman Catholic, as I'll mention that in my talk. I'm I'm not a theologian. Uh, I'm not. I'm trained as a political philosopher. Uh, I came to Augustine um, because of his importance in the history. Well, that's not quite true. I used his importance in the history of Western political thought, which is significant, as an excuse. And all of you doctoral students should bear this in mind to write a doctoral dissertation that allowed me to spend as many hours every day reading Augustine as I possibly could. It's not, (laughs) the reason that your committee thinks you're writing your dissertation does not have to be the reason you're actually writing your dissertation. And that's quite important. This Uh, is supposed to be secret. Oh, well, sorry, I I told them. On the recording. Uh, But, um, so I'm I'm reluctant to speak as any kind of spokesman for for my church. Uh, I'm not not trained as a theologian. I will say in my experience, certainly just, you know, 
speaking to other educated lay Catholics who are interested in the world that we that we're in, we see the same challenges as our Protestant brothers and sisters do. Uh, we see the same collapse of um, such Christian foundations as this country had to the extent that it did. It's a point of historical debate exactly how much, but I think we're all pretty sure there used to be more and now there's less, uh, and that's a problem. Uh, and it's not just this country. The whole West that Augustine's thought did a significant amount to shape at least the intellectual culture of um, has been engaged for a few centuries in fits and starts in again, at least among intellectuals, and, and they have an effect on everybody else on pushing back on its, on its Christian heritage, including its Augustinian heritage, and um, you know, try, trying to make God irrelevant to public life uh, in a way that Augustine didn't think he, he could or should be. But to the extent that that movement has traction, we're, we're back again. Um, I mean, I'll talk a bit about this in my talk. We, we're obviously not in his situation now because we're not talking to living, breathing pagans for the most part in the sense of, um, you know, actual believers in actual multiple gods who actually think they live in temples and so on. Like he, he knew people like this, and we don't have that. But we have something else. Uh, we certainly don't live in any sense anymore, if, if we, to the extent we ever did, uh, in, a, in a culture that can simply take um, any aspect of Christian faith for granted. Maybe we never should have, um, but... Uh, but if we did, we can't now. And that is something that he just obviously lived lived out. I mean, the, the confessions, it's, it's the story. It's, a, I think, a big part of his greatness. He's a man that lived through every question he ever asked himself uh, and, and had to struggle with everything intellectually before he could accept uh, Christian faith and continued to struggle intellectually after he had accepted it. And I think anyone can see we need that now. We all need that now. The uh, great theologian Andy Griffith, um, at one point listening to his son Opie speak as a child will speak more candidly than he should, looked at him and said, and to think I was proud when you learned to talk. <laughs> and uh, it was said of Luther by uh, uh, figures like Yaroslav Pelikan that he never had an unarticulated thought. And with the table talk and everything else, we, we, we got more Luther than almost any figure of... of say, 500 years either direction. With Augustine and not only his magisterial works, but the confessions and his sermons and, and, and so many of his other writings, um, I don't think it's true, of course, that Augustine never had an unarticulated thought. But there are a few people for whom there is so much articulation to deal with. That has to be part of this, right? I mean, because we, we, we're not having to fill in the gaps with Augustine the way we have to fill in the gaps with so many others. Yeah, I think five million or so words, which shows uh, uh, I think the value that the church has, has placed on Augustine. Um, and, you know, at least in my work, one of, one of the interesting parts is that um, we have retrieved him and, and wrestled a lot with him as a uh, as a theologian or political theorist, but not so much apologetics. And I think that's one of the things we picked up on is we have so many words, and yet, you know, what, what is going on in City of God and what, what might we retrieve? And I think, I think if you're going to City of God, if you've, if, you've, if you've read that, and you're going to pick up a nugget that you're just going to use, you're probably going to be disappointed. <laughs> 
But if you look at City of God and what he's doing at a macro level, and we'll, we'll get into this, uh, at least I'll get into it in my lectures on Friday morning, you begin to see the brilliance of Augustine and what he's doing. And, oh, okay, we can retrieve what he's doing at a macro level, even though I still want to say there's something like paganism going on. That might be a, a, <laughs> a further conversation, but um, there's something like paganism going on, but it's different than the kind of paganism okay. that Augustine, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, my favorite Augustine scholar, um, Joseph Ratzinger, said something like, the thing about modern paganism is yeah. it happens after the Christian demythologization of the world. And so people can still serve the same powers mm -hmm. that lurked behind the old gods, Dionysius, drink, Aphrodite, sex, uh, Ares, war. But now they know that they're not gods. Yeah. And that's a difference in one's relationship mm -hmm. to them. And Augustine was dealing with people that actually thought these were gods. And that, so, no, th there's an important difference there. I would just add to what you said about, you know, I f uh, people attribute it to different people. Who was it who said that anyone who claims to have read every word this man wrote is lying? Uh, it might have been Posidius, his biographer, or uh, yeah. one of, you know, somebody said it. It's, I think it, uh, I mean, the breadth of his intellectual interests is astonishing. The I'm, I'm going to talk about City of God, um, which is full of these snippets that people like to quote out of context. Uh, and I think, I think, I mean, I'll just give my interpretation of it without doing the, without sort of talking you through how I got to it. But how I got to it is by reading his early work on free choice, which, which is the only place he lays out the distinction between the temporal law and the eternal law. And I think if you haven't read that carefully, you're just going to misinterpret all the things he says in the city of God. So I'll give you later my take on city of God in light of what, he, what I think he says in on free choice. But you know, there's just, you, you never know. There might be some other, some other book that, that is where he's explained better what you're wondering about in this other passage. My big takeaway from that, and it's, it's very heartening to see such a full room here. The project of recovering this man's thought for the 21st century has barely begun. This is a huge scholarly and intellectual project, and it requires a lot of collaboration among a lot of people that spend a lot of time reading him because none of us is going to get to all of him, and we all need to read each other and learn from each other. Uh, odd timing. Uh, I, just, uh, I noticed very quickly the stack of mail in my office today. Uh, one thing that just came today, I subscribed to this uh, New City uh, translation project on uh, Augustine, and uh, a volume landed today. Good. And I'm not sure I'll live long enough to see all the volumes, um, which is true for other projects as well. But uh, this is pretty amazing. I, I do think it's shocking. And Professor Burns, when I, I did part of my uh, doctoral work um, 40 roughly years ago in a Roman Catholic institution, I, I, I found something I did not exactly expect. I wasn't completely surprised either, but that was that the historical reference point for so many discussions wasn't someone like Augustine, it was Thomas. And then I, I would come back over to the Protestant side where obviously there's a lot of interest in uh, the, the revival of patristic studies. But in particular, it's Augustine. Uh, and I think partly because of both Calvin and Luther, you know, who, who point Protestants right back to Augustine. Can you kind of lay out the intellectual landscape a bit for us? And again, we want to be clear. We're not asking you to speak for the Vatican. We're asking you as a Catholic, we're just asking you as a Catholic intellectual to kind of help us see the landscape. I would also distinguish between speaking for the Vatican and speaking for the Catholic Church, but that's a whole other conversation. They're not That's one that would be worth paying for. But at this point, we understand. But, yeah. Look, I think... There are understandable historical reasons why, starting in the 19th century, 
uh, the Catholic intellectual world starting in Europe and then, you know, belatedly in this country as we tried to catch up to European intellectual life, for better or for worse, um, turned back to Thomas as um, uh, an extremely intelligent, authoritative, worked out set of ideas that they turned to, to to counter what they saw, I think, correctly as false philosophical ideas that were having dangerous effects on people's intellectual and moral formation. Um, I, I like Thomas an awful lot. Uh, I agree with him almost every time I, I read him. I don't have a, a taste for his writing, if I can put it that way. Um, I'm just much more... I mean, the, the big difference between their personalities is that Augustine, uh, new atheists, new pagans, new you know Manichaeans, knew everybody, had been friends with them, had been had been had been a Manichaean. One of you know been various things. Yes. There's one point in the Confessions when he says we almost went with Epicurus. Yeah. Uh, really remarkable statement. They were close, uh, and and Thomas didn't. Thomas lived in an, in a world of people of professed Christians. I'm sure he knew many people who were in fact atheists, but said, still said they were Christians. Uh, he had never met a pagan. Uh, he had, you know, there was this earthquake a couple hundred years ago when the the uh, explorers got to the U.S. and met actual pagans uh, for the first time in, in centuries. He hadn't had that experience, uh, and so I just find all of his writing is um, uh, it, it shows the kind of intellectual engagement that I'm just used to having with my non-Christian friends. He's yeah. used to talking to the kind of people that I'm used to talking to. Thomas is an Augustinian, and there are different schools of Thomism. Uh, he, he, he quotes scripture most, Augustine second most, Aristotle third most. It's a common misconception. He quotes Augustine more than he quotes Aristotle. And I read him through the lens of Augustine, uh, and I see him as one great expositor of Augustine. Um, I'm also more interested in moral issues than metaphysical issues, and I gather there's some metaphysical differences between them, and I just don't follow that stuff as much. Um, but I do think that... Uh, Fundamentally, you know, the difference of approach between the more Platonic Augustine, who's interested in dialectic, uh, as we see recorded in the Platonic dialogues, and the more sort of magisterial treatise, uh, uh, Aristotle, like here, is, here are my views on the heavens or on the soul or whatever. Uh, in terms of style, I'm just much, much more attracted to the Platonic Augustinian style. I don't think that has to be a fundamental philosophical difference, but I think there are good reasons to be more attracted to that in the culture we live in. You know, by the way, a lot of people it, that are unaware of how the great conversation has actually proceeded through time. So, for example, I shock evangelicals when I say that among the three most often quoted people by John Calvin in the Institutes of the Christian Religion are Augustine and Bernard of Clairvaux. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, shocking, uh, a, a shocking reality. You kind of look at it and you say, well, okay, he's in conversation with people that I didn't know he was in conversation with. I went to an international Karl Barth Society meeting many years ago when I was a doctoral student. And uh, I'll never forget uh, a European Barth scholar getting up and saying, um, there is no Karl Barth. There's only your Karl Barth, my Karl Barth. The, the Karl Barth who was Karl Barth is dead. And the problem is his thought is so massive, and yet his thought is so anecdotal at times, because it was, you have the early Bart, the late Bart, the, the middle Bart. So, so you really have to talk about Thomas Torrance's Bart, or, uh, you know, uh, Emil Bruner's Bart. Is, is that true for Augustine? I mean, are, are because 
like it or not, an awful lot of what we know of Augustine and our engagement with him, it has been mediated by somebody else. And so I'm very thankful for the, the work in the primary sources, spent so many years of my life in those myself, but I still know that somehow I'm not reading this as if I've never, I've never read Augustine or, or encountered these ideas for the first time. So, you know, when I ask both of you, whose Augustine do you know? That's quite the question. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's always um, a relationship between between a text and the reader, right? I mean, and so we and then we can't escape uh, certain assumptions and presuppositions going into a text as a as a Protestant versus a Catholic, and some of these that are represented by these two chairs. But I, I still want to go back to the text, right? Right, but you but somebody told you about Augustine before you read Augustine. Someone told you what sure. Augustine's contribution was. Someone outlined the framework of Augustinian thought. You didn't find it in the woods. Yeah. Yeah, and so just in just in Augustinian studies, like like Bart studies, which I'm I'm <laughs> I'm not an expert for sure in Bart studies, but there's going to be different schools of thought, and you become aware of those as you do your scholarship. And so there's uh, more Platonic readings of. I'm just of asking Augustine. about you. What, who's yeah. Bart is? I mean, I'm who's sorry, Augustine I'm sorry, yeah. is? You know, there was where, where, where did you find your way into this discussion? Oh yes, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, some of the influences on me were like uh, John Cavadini's work on Augustine. Um, that the the work that is pointing out, uh, of course, I mean, the, huge for me is Peter Brown's biography of Augustine. Um, of course, even even Brown, because and he he does this in a second edition, because Brown is is willing to come back and adjust his position on on Augustine based on the evidence because more sermons and letters are coming out when he comes to his second edition, he's saying actually Augustine is, he says he's not quite the authoritative, uh, you know, ex cathedra leader that he thought he was. In fact, that he had to persuade. He didn't have the same power that he thought he, when Brown wrote it in the sixties. And so I'm still, I've been influenced by Brown, Cavadini's reading of the text. Um, uh, more, more recently, I think uh, Charles Matthews work on Augustine, but I'm still saying I, I want to go back to the primary source and see is this did these did these schools of thought best represent Augustine what he's doing? Um, so I might be able to answer this better. I don't sir. know. I mean, I, I came to it in a very odd way. That's that's not likely to be directly relevant to to folks here. I, I um, was studying political philosophy at a department um, dominated by students of Leo Strauss, uh, and his students, uh, from whom I learned a lot about respect for texts actually, and really sort of immersing yourself back into the great conversation. None of them, uh, had a religious bone in their body. Um, uh, and I wasn't there to read Augustine with them, I was, but, but, but I was bothered certainly by, by some of the challenges they had to my faith. Uh, and I, and then I opened Augustine, uh, and I found that he was speaking directly to the same questions that these faithful readers of Plato and Aristotle uh, and, and Machiavelli and Hobbes and Locke uh, and Rousseau and Hegel and Nietzsche, um, it turns out the, the, the greatest minds really are, a lot of them bothered by exactly the same questions. And I found that I had more direct access to Augustine because of having been introduced to both his predecessors and the people like, Mach I mean, Machiavelli his two main targets are, are Augustine and Cicero. Um, uh, 
Uh, and I, I understand Augustine better as a result of, of having read Machiavelli first, actually. Uh, originally, uh, it was Ernest Fortin, the Augustine scholar, who himself was, a, had, was sort of influenced by Straussians and was trying to give his own Augustinian response to that, um, that introduced me to it. But I, 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 it was very helpful for me at the time. Since then, I've, I've found all sorts of disagreements I have with his reading of Augustine. So I think I agree with you, Dr. Muller, that all of us start out helped by some sort of interpreter or something. Um, and those interpreters are going to, you know, push us in different ways. And ultimately, it's certainly been my experience, and I hope it'll be others, that, you know, those interpreters, if they're good, they're pointing us back to the text. And the more we get immersed in the actual texts, and again, in, in, the, in the really great trans-historic, not, not uh, uh, sort of multi-century conversation that those texts are part of, the closer we come, I think, to having, none of us ever did it perfectly, but the closer we come to having direct access to the thoughts that he was having, as we would have been if we had been sitting in the room with him, which is what we most wish we could have. Yeah, so um, my introduction to Augustine in a scholarly level was really um, through first Professor Timothy George, who uh, was my professor and friend, and um, did a reading seminar in Augustine. And it was all reading Augustine. There were secondary sources. But Timothy George was a secondary source and a very informed secondary source. So in, in other words, even, even what he chose we were reading and uh, how he led the, you know, the, the discussion among the readers, that was, a, that was part of it. But he was drilling us into the sources. I wanted to find out more about Augustine. And so Peter Brown's biography, I have to put in one of the, say, top 10 biographies I've ever read in my life in terms of changing my life. You know, in other words, this is, this is something that is a touchstone going forward. I was honored to do a couple of uh, Thinking in Public programs with him. Mm. And uh, to talk, and I mean, you're talking about someone who was productive into his his tenth decade, into his nineties, and you're talking about someone who invented an entire area of intellectual uh, research. You know, with late antiquity, he, he basically invented an entire historical epoch. Um, and, and so, I I want to I want to free students to find a way into uh, kind of. Uh, the seduction of a figure like Augustine by saying, pick up Peter Brown's biography, pick up the second edition, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and kind of give yourself to it. And, and not that you're going to know Augustine, or for that matter, Peter Brown, comprehensively this way, but you're going to be a part of a conversation that's going to make you want to know more about Augustine. It's going to make you want to read uh, Augustine. So, you know, I, I, I often refer students uh, to shorter works by great minds, and then I refer them to someone who can at least spark the conversation to make them want to know more and go deeper into the original sources. And uh, so I, I appreciate the way you, you guys answered that question. Uh, Professor Burns, in, on the Catholic side, um, where are the centers of Augustinian scholarship? And, and I realize that that question in a Catholic context can be answered so many different ways because Augustinian can mean different things. I mean the study of Augustine and, and Augustine's thought. Uh, where would you see the primary intellectual centers now? Is, it, is this being recorded? I don't want to miss, forget to name somebody. And have the, the, this is later. not loaded. You're speaking among evangelicals who... I, I just don't want... Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. certainly uh, Notre Dame and Villanova are the, between the, the uh, Center for Early Christian studies at Notre Dame and the Augustinian Institute at Villanova, or Augustine, I always get the names confused, Augustinian Institute, I think, at Villanova, um, are where, you know, conferences get held. Yeah. Um, uh, there are scholars of him scattered throughout. Um, uh, 
I have not kept up on the Augustine scholarship since finishing my dissertation as much as I would have if I hadn't just had five children in six years. Uh, <laughs> twins, twins will do that, guys. That's actually it's that's very, very Augustinian. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's very reasonable spacing every two years, but then you double one of them and it becomes an awful lot of children. Uh, they're great. Um, I will also say, uh, to come back to the earlier question, the, the, the Augustinian scholar who I didn't mention, who, who's had the biggest influence on how I read him, actually, is Joseph Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict XVI, uh, and who his early, he was a scholar of Augustine before he became a bishop. Uh, his stuff hasn't been translated except for one book, uh, and it's astonishing. His, his, he's got an encyclopedic knowledge of the sources uh, and his insight into the real issues, particularly between him and paganism and between him and Platonism. Uh, is unsurpassed by anybody that I've read. And I particularly, I'll just draw on him, not by name in my talks, but for applying him to a 20th and 21st century context in secularizing Europe, as he did later in his public life, because he was called on to speak on public issues uh, as a you know cardinal and a pope. Um, and he always w did so very consciously, ecumenically. He was always trying to speak for the common Christian tradition as best he could, um, and not simply for the Catholic part of it. Um, his insights into what an Augustinian would do in our modern secularizing world are my favorite uh, and have been really important for me just to figuring out what this stuff means for us. I'm going to answer that question as a Baptist. Uh, so one of, the, uh, one of the ways that this book took us in unexpected places is we got an invitation from the Augustine Institute, which is a Catholic institute. Right. And so I'm from South Georgia. My co-author is from West Virginia. Uh, he, uh, we're both, uh, both low church Protestants, and we, we find ourselves in the Augustine Institute, surrounded by uh, Notre Dame grads and um, Catholic school, to talk Augustine. And we're gearing up for not kind of knowing, this is not our environment. You know, we don't really know what's, what's about to happen. And their patristics expert comes out and says, I agree with your reading on Augustine. Let's talk about Ratzinger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he said, because what you guys have done actually is parallel with what Ratzinger is trying to do in the middle of the 20th century, who is an Augustinian. And so he starts drawing parallels between the Augustine way and Ratzinger as he's responding to Marxism and in a way that just opened up a whole nother world for me as a low church Protestant yeah. to explore and to read more Ratzinger, to see what he's doing and to, to see if, if we could see some of the parallels. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, as I think I mentioned, did uh, two doctoral seminars at a Roman Catholic institution, really focusing on theological method. And uh, so I was assigned for one of those seminars, uh, Rahner and Lonergan, very modern. Mm -hmm. Rahner, a, a kind of similar in project to Bart's project. Uh, not the same, but similar. And uh, then um, I got to choose, and I chose Ratzinger. And now he was newly head of the Sacred Congregation uh, and very much a, a part of the conversation under the pontificate of John Paul II. Uh, but I just discovered his writings, and it was really by that seminar I discovered, and, and, and some of which was untranslated at the time, but still a lot was translated. And, um, yeah, I, I will just say providentially I was in very good shape as an evangelical to speak about the new pope mm -hmm. when uh, uh, then Cardinal Ratzinger became uh, Benedict XVI. Uh, I, I, th I think what people, 
because a lot of people look at uh, political co-belligerence. That's not irrelevant. I think what a lot of people would be more surprised is to know that um, at the level of uh, Christian intellectual conversation, there was then an enormous amount of cross-fertilization under the pontificate. First of all, John Paul II, uh, but then a Benedict XVI. And it, it was not an ecumenism. It was a giant theological project, and uh, there was a lot of excitement. Not so much excitement at the moment. Uh, well, <laughs> well, look, the current pope is not an intellectual and is not that interested in intellectual things. And as an intellectual, I'm sad about that. I'll just leave it at that for now. Um, I'm sad about other things, but I'm leaving it there for now. Uh, this, it ties into something that, that I think we should be thinking about as Americans. Ratzinger's experience at the German university was, because of the German state system, that the, the major universities each have two faculties of theology, a Catholic theology of, a, a Catholic faculty of, that is the equivalent for us of a school, you know, a Catholic school of theology and a Lutheran school of theology. Every major university has this, and, you know, they see each other in the halls, they're on panels together, they're friends with each other, they go out to dinner together, like, they, they talk about their work with each other. In the U.S., for understandable historical reasons, we don't have that. We've got our Catholic universities and our Protestant universities. But, you know, he brought that experience. That, that's his view of what intellectual, what intellectual life as a theologian is, is uh, you're talking with your friends of, of both confessions. And I think we in the U.S. need to get better at finding little snippets of that uh, in, you know, whatever it is, common conferences or whatever it is, to, to keep talking with each other and, you know, arguing with each other where necessary and, and just... Uh, learning from each other, most important. Yeah, I think a lot of that, that still goes on. I mean, you're here. Thank yeah, you for I, coming. I thank you very much for inviting yeah, me. Thank you for coming. Uh, I'm doing an event with Rusty Reno for First Things, where the two of us are in dialogue together in Chicago in just a matter of a couple of weeks. Um, and, and, of course, that implies there's a lot of conversation going on, you know, elsewhere. And, Dr. Muller, you're, yeah. you're much better at it than most Catholic universities are. I'll just say that. I, I meant that as a compliment. Well, Gladly received and grateful. And again, thank you for coming. We, we much appreciate uh, both of you being here. Um, this is a place we, we really are pretty uh, eager about intellectual engagement. And uh, that means the present as well as the past. So this conference is about apologetics as a contemporary task, uh, looking to Augustine as a truly ancient model, uh, but looking to uh, the relevance of Augustine for helping us to kind of find our way. Uh, which is exactly the title of your book. Uh, what's been the reception to your book thus far? Well, um, overall, well, I mean, we, one of the things that um, one of the things that we wanted to do is we wanted to start a conversation with different groups, and the the fact that um, I'm here, where I went to my my master, where I got my masters, as well as I'm interacting with Catholics. I'm interacting with, uh, you know, Wesleyans, um, at, at Beeson, there's a, a big discussion over, in fact, Carl Truman was just on campus and, you know, Augustine's in the background of that. So that there's lots of, I think, um, people are very interested in number one, how do we actually, uh, persuade in the midst of this moment? And, um, in, in my world of apologetics, I think we've been in a kind of a rut of saying, this is how we did things 50 years ago, and yet the cultural winds have changed. And one of the points we're making is Augustine was so nimble in different contexts. And I don't think how we have taught apologetics has always been so nimble. So there's been an interest both in 
Augustine scholars to say, did these guys get Augustine right? And so far, it's, it's been fairly positive. And then, and then there's an interest on the apologetic side saying, okay, what are they saying and how is this different? We haven't heard as much on that side yet, actually. So we're we're eager to see, you know, what happens there. Well, a lot of that's in the weeds. Yeah. Uh, just to be honest, uh, you look at a lot of even conferences on Augustine. I mean, not that it's unproductive. This is how scholarship's done. But uh, fewer are the conferences, or I think the conversations that say, look, we're, we're trying to figure out how to survive as faithful Christians uh, in the 21st century. Uh, we want this to be scholarly, but let's admit we're talking about apologetics here. This, uh, there's a, yep. there's a, there is a sense of emergency and desperation, which leads me, because time's running out here, to say that, uh, you know, I, I teach about Luther and about Calvin, just to take two examples, and, and they're not equivalent, mm -hmm. because Calvin's more magisterial in his writings, mm -hmm. but frankly, less interesting in his biography. And I don't mean he doesn't have an interesting biography, but he just it's, it's just not Luther. I mean, because Luther is Luther. Mm -hmm. um, Bill Clinton supposedly said that he was disappointed in a sense. It, it, it's, a, it's a rather pathetic statement, but he, he said, great presidents are made by war, and I didn't have one. Like, you know, hey, missed that opportunity. And uh, you, know, you look at this and you go, well, no, Augustine is at least partly made by... The enemies that he had, the battles that he fought, and I'm hard-pressed to come up with any analogy in, in, in human history to how many fights he had to, had to fight. I mean, you're talking about Pelagianism and the Manichees. You're talking about classical pagans. Um, it, it, it is, and, and by the way, the, the Visigoths, I mean, they're, they're, they're all there. And so how in the world does one person comprehensively deal with this? I think it's, that's a part of what God gave us in Augustine as someone who is really taking all that on. So just as we kind of bring this to a conclusion, why Augustine in 2023 rather than someone else? We're not saying there aren't other sources, or other minds, other theologians, other church figures... But there's a reason why we're talking about Augustine. Yeah, well, to tie some of this together is because Calvin and Luther are operating in a space where, um, not that there, you can read in Calvin that he's he's expressing that yeah, there's still doubts, but he, they still there is this plausibility structure that was in place that Christianity was basically assumed. You just open up confessions, and that's not the world Augustine's right. living in. And so if we're trying to retrieve something that's on the ground that's going to actually uh, give us some juice, actually help us, they're in a very different social context. It's and not John that they Calvin brilliant, never but... saw himself as a non-Christian. Mm -hmm. And so... A so, radical distinction with Augustine. And so for Augustine, he, he narrates how he tried these different different forms of life on, these different uh, world and life views, as, as a, a Bavink would say. He, and so he's trying these on, and he's showing how they don't work existentially, rationally. Um, and he does that in confessions, and he's talking, a, and he's talking about very, in a very personal way, but then he's, he's taking that and taking it to all of society and city of God. 
and that just maps on to, again, there's lots of differences, but that maps on better to our present context. And he viewed himself as an apologist. He, he wrote City of God and said, this is, I'm writing this and I want it to be passed very specific instructions about how he wants it to be distributed to the pagans. This was an apologetics work. So I think... Well, look at the prepositions. Look, look how he speaks of writing in his different titles. And of course, in translation, some of them get a little garbled and sometimes they're, they're incomplete. But he... He basically the subtitles are for this against that. Yeah, you just don't see many people write with that kind of intellectual candor. And then, and then the other part, and I'll talk about this in the morning. Uh, in the morning, but um, he, he's not just going. Uh, he's not just going to convince people. He's going to convert people. He's out to convert, and in order to do that, he takes his full anthropology with love and desire and us as believing beings and he's going after not only the head but the heart and those are those are things not only as a pastor who cares about moving people to love god more but as an apologist i want to say okay i i need that because i'm ultimately going for conversion as an apologist uh i want to see people come to faith so uh for me augustine's just been such a help um, in order to figure out how to do that. So I can speak to that for me. I think there's a, an awakening of, of Augustine scholarship in other areas, theologically and political thought, um, that I, I can't speak as much to. But, um, and I think that's for me and Mark and others who have been attracted to him for, for those two reasons. Yeah. I think uh, I agree with all that, first of all. Uh, what would I add? I think Augustine... Uh, is a great Christian, a great saint. He's not the only great saint of the patristic period. Um, he's not even the only great thinker of the patristic period. There's a lot. Of, he's 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 falling in a tradition of really most of the greatest minds of 400 years of antiquity, uh, with a few exceptions, uh, converted to Christianity. And those exceptions are interesting too, because Plotinus, Porphyry, Celsus, you know, the, the fathers are in dialogue with them, uh, who are who's, who are still arguing with them. But you know. Chrysostom, uh, Irenaeus, uh, just you know Tertullian, even to take 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 through all, go through all of them. Uh, Augustine is, as far as I can tell, the smartest of them, uh, and that's not all there is to life. But when all we have of you is your books, it makes a big difference to us for what we can learn from him. Uh, we can't learn from his example. There were other holy men at the time from whose example we could have learned. Uh, he was a holy man, and he wouldn't have written such good books if he wasn't. Um, but being a very holy man, uh, and being extraordinarily smart and, and knowing the philosophical tradition in particular better than anybody, um, as well as any, you know, as well as any of the, the philosophers themselves that I think allowed him to think through in this time of crisis that he had, you know, times of crisis often, if it's, if it's a, a deep enough thinker in that time of crisis, it causes them to try to reach down to the roots of something that people have just been sort of skimming on the surface of before. But he reached down to the roots, you know, I mean, look, the, the, ref, the crisis of the Reformation caused people to try to think through this question of what the church is, which hadn't been debated in, uh, sufficiently in Christendom for a long time. Catholics and Protestants came to different answers of it, but it was a serious question and one that needed de debating. It was, as you said, within the framework of taking for granted that the Christian proposition is true, and then given that Christianity is true, what's the church? Augustine was a level deeper. It was the, the, the human meaning of the Christian proposition itself. 
He was also in, involved in debates over what the church is with the Donatists and debates over the scriptures with the, with the Manichaeans uh, and the other rejectors of the Old Testament. And, you know, he, he went, there, was, there were a bunch of different ones, but, but the one, and I think Ratzinger is right about this, the, the deepest one and the one that most stamped the rest of his thought was with his own pagan philosophic past uh, and, 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 its, and its living representatives because the, you know, the, the question, what does it mean to accept Christ? What does it mean for every aspect of our lives? Uh, and to do that in dialogue with the greatest thinkers about what it means to be a human being in the first place, people who had come to the best thoughts of that, about that before Christ, do um, that and, and, and allowed him to reach down to the essentials of the Christian proposition and then to articulate them clearly for us to learn something from in a way that that's, that's what I think distinguishes him most as a, as a perennial Christian teacher. So in conclusion, um, I was not in person, but by recording heard a lecture by Peter Brown. And he started out by explaining that the basilica shaped uh, cathedral in which Augustine ministered and, and preached uh, there in North Africa, was on the Lord's Day a cacophony. Uh, first of all, a lot of the people living in Hippo didn't understand what Augustine was saying. <laughs> they didn't speak the language. It was a place where people would come in and do commerce in, in, in portions of the cathedral, even as Augustine's preaching. When disputes would arise, and obviously children are loose, and he said animals were never far away. The noise of the street was coming in the basilica, and he said Augustine had to learn to raise his voice and project. And I just want to say we are here today because he did learn how to raise his voice and project, uh, and for that we're very thankful. Professors, thank you for joining me, and uh, we'll look forward to the rest of the conference and hearing more. And thank you for coming. God bless you all. Thank you so much, Dr.